Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people, so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text uh, is in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there, uh, there are some on the back table we would love to give you. That is our gift to you. Grab one of those. And while you're doing that, and while my electronics uh, come to life and try and get something up here so I can talk to you, uh, let, me, let me remind you why we're doing this and what we're doing here. Uh, we have spent the last 10 weeks, this is our 10th week, in uh, the book of Nehemiah looking at what it means to renew a city. Uh, what we have seen in the midst of us looking through this book is a person uh, the person who the book is named after, Nehemiah, who has been uh, many things. We've seen him uh, engaged with the Lord in prayer. We've seen someone who has planned, who has risked, uh, who, who has spent himself, literally spent his own resources, who has organized a community, faced opposition from outside and from within, rebuilt structures in a community that will help it flourish, and then finally turning towards the people themselves. Because you see, unlike the political ideologies that are present in our culture, and more so now, uh, Christianity rejects those uh, simplistic dichotomies that say that either our problems are broken structures or broken people, right? Because our, our, our ideologies want to say it's either one or the other. We're either going to place all of our weight on broken people, and the problems are that, that people are just broken, or we're going to place all of our weight on structures and say the people are fine. If the systems would work for them, everything would be great. Christianity rejects that. The problem is both. Our structures are broken because we are broken. And in the last two weeks, we've seen how God applies renewal to people, right? We, we've talked about that, we, that he works to reconcile us to himself through Jesus, and that is applied to us uh, through faith, and that, that comes through uh, the Word, right, the Bible, that, that the Word of God comes to us and, and begins doing that work. It does, through, it does it also through confession. We saw that last week, and this week we come and see it in worship. Uh, so if you have your place in Nehemiah, we're in chapter 12, uh, verses 40 to 47. If you stand with me, uh, as is our habit here, in honor of God's Word, This is the word of God. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim and Maasiah, 
and Meniamin and Micaiah and Elioni and Zechariah and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maasiah and Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Azar. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them, in, gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we come into this time. Would you just bless it? We come as worshipers. All of us are. No matter what we think of Jesus this morning, everyone in this room is a worshiper of something. And so, Lord, we pray that you would turn our hearts towards you, that you would order our loves rightly, and that we would be lovers and worshipers first and foremost of the Lord our God. Would you apply your gospel to our hearts this morning and fill this time with meaning? Would you let Christ and his cross come to the fore and the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, for you alone hold the words of eternal life. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, friends, let me warn you about something. What we are about to do and what we're about to talk about this morning is a dangerous thing. You see, we throw around the word worship, and for most of us, my guess is that we would end up thinking to ourselves that there is nothing less dangerous, right? Nothing nothing less, more, more, something, there's nothing that is more innocuous than worship, right? I mean, worship is a religious word. It's kind of very... It's like milk toast. It's, it's just, there's just nothing to it. It's vacuous. It's vanilla. But let me cut right to it by breaking down the word, right? In, in, in English, in the old English, to worship something is to ascribe it worth, to, to proclaim its worth. It, worship ultimately is about proclaiming something of being ultimate worth to us. And that means that worship is about love. Worship is about love because you love that thing that you find ultimate, so worship is about love, not religion. And, and so that means that everyone in this room is in the same place because everyone loves. Everybody loves. What we see here this morning is a people turning everything they have towards proclaiming the ultimate worth of God in their lives, declaring and delighting in love. And, and, and in fact, as we're going to see in a second, this is, this is the pinnacle the, of the narrative of this book, the, the pinnacle of the renewal of this city. Because, friends, this is what we were all made for. We were made to worship God. So this morning we're going to be looking at this in three ways. I know that's shocking to most of you. We're going to be looking at this in the centrality of worship. We're going to look at it in terms of the importance of worship. And then, finally, understanding worship. Okay? Worship centrality, its importance, and then, it's under, and then understanding it. All right? There's an outline of your bulletin if that's helpful. If not, just leave it. 
So let's start by talking about what's going on here. Right, we, where we left off last week, the people had just gotten done confessing their sin. That was a happy time. Uh, they had just gotten done confessing their sin. From there, they, they recommitted themselves to the Lord in kind of a covenant renewal ceremony. And then in the midst of that, there is a move to repopulate the city. Right? They had just rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, they're, they're recommitting themselves to the people. Now they're talking about repopulating the city because they need a reurbanization. Because everyone had moved out. The city was dangerous. No one wanted to live there anymore. And so, after all of that is done, they schedule a worship service. Now, a special one, certainly, but still, a worship service. It is a time to give praise to God for all that he has done. In fact, the entire tenor of this chapter is reflecting on what God has done. Giving thanks and praise to God for all that he has done. So let's take a, this, a look at this service, shall we? Let's look at what they did first and foremost. Look down at verses 40 to 43. It says this, So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me. Now stop there. Here's what's going on. Uh, in the midst of this, two large choirs have been put together, right? Two large groups of singers, um, one led by one group of leaders, uh, the other led by Nehemiah, and they've, they've, up to this point, they have marched themselves around the city, around the walls. Everyone who is part of these choirs probably worked on sections of those walls, so that there's, there's a bit of their own kind of, they, they understand exactly what's happening, what, what went on, and they're giving praise to God, and, and they've just gotten done walking around the wall, and now they come to the house of God. This is the temple, okay? Now, temple language is hard for us for a couple of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, we think of it like a church building, right? The temple's like a church building, and that's not it at all. Like, we go, what's the big deal? Why do they need only one church building? We have a million, right? <laughs> Why is there one church building in Jerusalem and none anywhere else when we have a million? Uh, that, that's not it at all. And that doesn't do justice either to the idea of temple or, frankly, the idea of church. Because, look, you may have heard me say this before, maybe not... The, the idea of church in our culture is that the church is a place you go, but in the Bible, the church is who you are. And the scripture talks about the church as an identity, not a location. Uh, you, don't, you don't come to church, even though every one of us, including myself, says it that way, right? You don't come to church. You are the church. At best, you bring the church into a building. Uh, but the second problem is that the, kind of the, the secular nature of our culture in a lot of ways has, has uh, helped, helped us think of temples as these places of superstition, right? These places of uh, kind of pseudo-ancient magic where they, where they believed silly things and did silly things. And... But here's why this particular thing matters, why these people are gathered at the house of God. In the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God's special presence dwells. Now, in the Old Testament, Jews in the Old Testament believed the same thing that, you know, we see people in the New Testament believing. God is everywhere. They know that. God is omnipresent. That's one of those omni-phrases, right? He's, he's everywhere, and yet his presence dwells in a special way in the temple. Because that is the place where, again, in the Old Testament, heaven and earth meet, and it is only there. There is one temple, not many, because God is one. That is the place that you go to worship that is the place you go to see your sins forgiven. That is the place you go to be restored to the community. It is the center of everything. 
And so the fact that the choirs and the peoples have come to the house of God means that what we are engaging in here, what we are witnessing in the midst of all of the craziness, in the midst of all of the confusion, what do we have with these choirs and there's all these names? I can't believe Rick had three weeks in a row of reading all these names. And what is going on? Trumpets and da-da-da-da. What is going on is a corporate worship service. And then in verses 41 and 42, we have all these priests mentioned, right? These are the religious professionals. When we think of priests, uh, if, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you generally think of sacrifices. Uh, but they handled more than that. They were also the teachers of God's word. And then in verse 43, we read this. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Now stop there. This seems weird to us. But again, in the language of the Old Testament, this is a worship service. I wish I had enough time to go into, well, what might all these sacrifices be about? And why would they do that? Uh, The what's and how's of Old Testament worship, we simply don't have time for. Uh, Needless to say this, sacrifices in the Old Testament were given for lots of different kinds of things. Some involved animals, some did not. Uh, There were lots of different things. Some of them were for sin, but not all of them. But what we see going on here is lots of singing, It's the offering of thanksgiving, the offering of sacrifices as God has commanded it. Uh, It is elaborate, it is extended, and it is powerful. And in terms of the narrative of this story, this provides the high mark. This is the pinnacle. The entire book of Nehemiah has been racing towards this moment when God's people reconstituted back in the city that that, that they had been given at the temple of God, are now worshiping, giving thanks to him for everything he has done. It is as if everything in this book were bringing us to the point of worship. Now, the reality is that's not super powerful for us, though, right? Because, I mean, ancient people did lots of crazy things. So why should this be any different? Uh, They did lots of crazy stuff to appease their gods. And that is why the why is so important. Not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it, okay? Look at verse 43. It says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. How many times can someone say joy in one sentence? Did you notice that? Five times in this one sentence it is mentioned. And so, if there's anything about the why, why are they doing this, you'd have to like, camp on, I don't know, but it has something to do with joy. Because if you're going to mention it that many times, that must be what it's about. They are worshiping because they are rejoicing, and they are rejoicing, we are told, because God made them rejoice. And, and this is important, so follow me. We tend to think, I don't know whether it's an inward bent in our hearts, I have a suspicion that's probably a lot of that, but also I think we tend to think because of uh, something that in, in the cultural air that worship and sacrifice and all of that kind of language, that that is what people do to get in God's good graces, right? I mean, that's what we think. We do all these things and that's what gets us into God's good graces. And that's because we view God as a Coke machine. Take your quarter, you push your button, you get out your blessing, right? I do this, I push this, I get out... My blessing, which is why we get mad when things don't happen the way we want them to. We put in our quarter, we push the Sprite button, and we got a Diet Coke. And who wants Diet Coke? Me. But anyway, um, but this destroys all of that. Because worship in the Bible is not about getting God to like you. Worship is not a Christianized version of magic. Nor is it the place where we go punch our card so that God will be nice to us. 
yeah, yeah, I messed up a lot this week, but I'm putting in my time. That hour and a half or more is, is you know, that, that helps me out here. Worship is always a response to what God has done. Look at the language that's used there. Thanks. Rejoicing. Great joy. These are words that are used because something has happened, not to get something to happen. Right? Thanksgiving, not the turkey, but the, the actual giving of thanks is about something that has happened. Uh, the, the, we, we rejoice because of something that has happened, not to get something to happen. And I, I know this is counterintuitive. Because everything in us strikes against this notion because our problem, according to the Bible, is so much different than what we think it is. We tend to think that our issue is that we aren't good enough, that we aren't moral. And so what God would want for us is to clean up our act. And that maybe worship is part of that because what he really wants is he wants us to worship. And so, yeah, I know I've blown it in these ways, but at least I've shown up. But that isn't at all. According to the Bible, our problem isn't it is also moral. But first and foremost, it's about independence, about independence from God. So whether you are moral apart from God or immoral apart from God, you are still apart from God. See, God in the Bible is always moving towards us. He's always initiating with us, always seeking to rescue us from our own independence, which is why Jesus came. He came to, to rescue us, to deal with our sin, to, to provide for us. And this is why salvation, to use that kind of Christian-y, churchy term, salvation, God's rescue, is a gift. It has to be. Because if it's not, you're not, in de- you're not being dependent at all. It has to be a gift. We depend upon God when we place our faith in Jesus instead of ourselves. Which means that as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, and if you're not, you can just listen in because I think it's important for you to understand this. As Christians, we don't worship to get God to save us. We don't worship to get God to be nice to us. We worship because God has saved us in Jesus. He has loved us in Jesus. And so frankly, friends, if you are looking to worship attendance to straighten out your record... It's going to fail you. Honestly, if, if that's where you're at, man, this is not a good place for you because that's only reinforcing your own sense of I'm okay because I came here. Jesus is the only one who can straighten out your record, straighten out my record. So put your faith in him. Because when you realize that God has come for you, he came for you, sought you out, bled and died for you, when you could have cared less about him, that's when you rejoice. You worship because you are proclaiming the one who rescued you as having ultimate worth to you. And if he doesn't, if he didn't do that, nothing else matters. Why are you here? Now that's the centrality of worship. Let's look at its importance. Um, look, centrality, importance, maybe that's splitting hairs, but, but what we really see in this last section is how important uh, the people, and really the Bible, think corporate worship is. And that, that's an important distinction. Corporate worship. Uh, that's what we're looking at, right? And that's hard for us, right? I mean, seriously, you can be honest. Most of us in this room probably look at what, we, what we're doing right now. Is it, it's, it's a good thing, but we don't really need it. I mean, this, is, this is good. I mean, what else am I going to do Sunday morning? I don't, don't like pol- political shows, so 
I could sleep in a long time. This, this is good, but, but we don't really need it. We, we tend to think we can commune with God anywhere. So maybe that's, you know, at a Redskins game or up on the AT or, or at a concert. But this passage begs to differ. Look at verses 44 and 46. Because first there in verse 44, you see people organized. That means that there is an organized structure that is placed around the continuation of corporate worship. You see that? They're placing dudes over the storerooms, over all these things. They're placing uh, priests and Levites into performing. They're performing the services of their God. You have singers and gatekeepers. Like, literally, people are organized like, okay, y'all, y'all can sing. We need you to do this. And y'all are really good at watching doors. I don't know what else gatekeepers did. But you had to have them, apparently. So they went and they stood at the gates. These are official positions. In other words... Whatever is going on here is so important that you have to organize people into roles to get it done. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because we live in an insanely individualized culture that shapes us to think that all that matters is our individual relationship with God. Which means that we see what we're doing here is kind of optional, corporate worship. It's just kind of optional. But what we see in this passage is incredible intentionality with keeping worship going. That's, this is important enough. What's going on in the temple is important enough that we need to provide organiz, organizational structure to make sure that it is maintained. You don't put this much attention into something that doesn't matter. Now, some of you are thinking like, okay, Rick, but that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. Right, okay. Uh, Two things on that. First, we believe the whole Bible, and not just what one of my professors called the appendix, right? Uh, He called the New Testament the appendix to the Bible. Um, There are great changes in worship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but its importance isn't one of them. How much it matters is not one of them. The attention to this kind of organization simply points to how important it is. Second, so first, first and foremost, we, we believe the whole Bible. Secondly, uh, this kind of argument always fails to take into account the whole story of Scripture. Because listen, if, if we see this level of importance, this level of attention to detail, this lev- level of organizational structure put into corporate worship before God came and fulfilled his promises in Jesus... If this is how it was for those who could only see a shadow of the glory of the gospel, but had no image of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us and then bearing our sins to both deal with our sin and to throw down evil in the world and then to rise again from the dead. If this was true of those who could only see shadows, how much more should it be true for those of us who live on the other side of the cross? If the sound of people's worship and joy in God could be heard from far away, it says, because of the city's worship. Because, he came, because you have a group of people who are giving praise to God, rejoicing in God because he restored them to a city. How much more should it be for those who have been given the gift of salvation in Christ and resto- are restored to God himself? So we see worship's importance by the attention to organization, but we also see it by the giving of resources. Look down at verse 44. 
three different kinds of giving are mentioned, right? Contributions, first fruits, and tithes. Uh oh. He just said the T word. I did. If it's your first time visiting here at Holy Cross, I know I'm about to fulfill every stereotype you have of preachers. Uh, but this is where the text goes, so I got to go there, okay? It's about to get real. Uh, these are three different and separate kinds of giving contributions, first fruits, and tithes. And they are, all, they are three separate things, but they all went to support the public worship of God. I know that's not popular in Christian circles, right? Uh, because we think those things can go to do, to do anything. But there's no other way to read this text. Because contributions, uh, throughout the way that word is used in the Old Testament, those are things that were given to support the priesthood. They're given to support the, the kind of folks who, because of their, because of their duties to help uh, both teach the word, to perform the work that's within the temple, they, they can't work the fields and all that other stuff they need to do. And so contributions are given in support of them for their needs. First fruits are also given to the priests for their support. Now, neither of those are a set amount, right? Because first fruits is a strange word that really just has to do with like the, the first things that grow uh, in your fields or the, the, the first of your stuff. Contributions aren't, they're not given a set amount. They are simply providing for those whose work supports the worship of God. Tithes, however, in the Old Testament are the first 10% of your income, whether that's agricultural or produce or money or whatever. And it went to support, again, the worship of God. And then in verse 47, we see that all of the people were giving in this way. Let me say that again. We see that all of the people were giving in this way. In other words, this isn't the call of a wealthy few. It literally says that all of Judea is doing this. It is, it is everyone. And in the context of this passage, what we see is this is the evidence of the work of renewal. This is the evidence that the people are really being renewed. The fact that the people gave was evidence that God had been working, that their rejoicing wasn't staged, that their thankfulness was real. Here's why. You and I will spend money on what we love, don't we? I mean, come on, there's no real arguing with that. We spend money on what we love. Our money flows freely towards what we think is ultimate. If you love entertainment, you spend on it. If you love a person, right? Guys, remember what it was like if if you're married? You remember what it was like when you first started dating your spouse and you're like, you just... The money flowed freely, and now your wives are like, and, and now? Like, you know, but it, it flowed freely because you, you love them. Our money flows freely towards what we think is ultimate. So the evidence of this work of renewal was found in the fact that the people's resources, a lot of resources, right? I mean, most of us in this room, like, what, what's the average? The average, even in evangelical churches of giving, is 1 or 2%, right? 1 or 2%. That's the average. These people's resources, not just a 10% thing, but well above that, their money, everything is flowing freely towards making sure that corporate worship, the work of the temple, was well supported. Which means that worship was important enough to support and to support consistently, proportionally, and intentionally. But just to make sure that we're not We're not misunderstanding things. Let me point this out again. Even this is said is done as a response. Right? 
They are still doing this because God has made them rejoice greatly. Because God has already come and done things. We give because God has given to us not to get something from him. Now, let me try and bring this home to us a little by understanding worship. First, our chief end. It's been said a few times here this morning. I'm going to reiterate it. You and I were made to worship. That's the argument of the Bible, that humanity was made to worship. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we're going to confess here in just a little bit, starts off. A catechism is kind of a, a question and answer form of teaching. And, and the Westminster Shorter was one that was written in the 1640s, and it was one to help teach uh, what the Bible teaches through question and answer. And the Shorter Catechism, believe it or not, was what kids were supposed to memorize. Now pastors are supposed to memorize it, but that's not the point. We've lowered the bar a little bit. Anyway, the Westminster Shorter asks, what is the chief end? What is the purpose, in other words, of humanity? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were made to worship because worship is about love, and you and I were made for love. That's what we were made for. We were made to love. But the problem is, because of our sin, we have a worship issue. We give ultimate worth to everything in our lives but God. Our loves are all messed up. (laughs) We were created to worship, which means we were made to have God as ultimate in our lives and everything else to line up underneath, which isn't to say that we were made to love God and everything else is silly and superfluous. It means that God is the chief love under which everything else lines up and makes sense. Literally, this morning, as I'm, as I'm reading and, and kind of praying and getting ready for, there was a, there was a line in a book called, um, I can't remember what the book is called. That's okay. It's not mattered. But the, the point is, is in the midst of reading it, it, it talks about the fact that as, as God lines up our, our affections and he is prime, all of those other things have, because they've lined up under him, become better. So you can enjoy a good steak because it's a great steak and enjoy thankfulness to God in the midst of it because he is the one who gave it and isn't this great? All of those other loves come, get sweeter because of it. But the problem is our loves are disordered, which means our, our problem is a heart problem. And so the work of Jesus was to come and deal with our sin so that our loves could be reordered so that our worship could return to God alone. Listen to me, you will worship something. You can't have that kind of high place in your heart set apart and go, that's just empty. Any more than a fish could go, today I'm just not going to breathe water. It's in your design. We all will put something there. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you think that you don't worship anything, that those things are just for crazy religious people, I need to tell you, you are one of those crazy religious people. And so am I. We all are. You and I were made to worship God, to love God. Because ultimately, all of those other things that we put in that place will fail you. He is the only ultimate that will never fail you. And the only way to have your loves reordered is through the perfect and finished work of Jesus. Okay? So that's our chief end. Lastly, let me talk about uh, our corporate purpose. I've said this passage is a high point in this book, that it was all leading to a worship service. And that is a big deal. It's a big deal because of what is going on here. But that begs the question, doesn't it? What do you think is happening here? 
What do you think happens when we all get together and we, we sit, and some of us have been sitting in the same chairs for like years. I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying, like, we do that, right? And, and, and we sit in these chairs and we're like, what do you think is happening in this gym? See, more is going on in a corporate worship context than we often think. And I like to talk about it in three ways, okay? Here are three things that go on in corporate worship. Again, I know you're shocked because it's three, but let me just give you three. First, corporate worship is about our expression of love for God. And that's normally where we camp, right? That's normally where we camp. Worship is about us coming in and giving our love for God, which is why so much of, uh, if if you listen at all to like contemporary Christian music, contemporary worship music, it's all about what we're coming to do because we're coming to express our love for God. Uh, so, but it, it is especially kind of poignant in our culture because it fits with the romanticism of our culture so that worship becomes kind of this spontaneous love poem, <laughs> right? It's a sonnet and we're, we're singing it. It is that, but there's more, okay? Corporate worship is about our expression of love for God. But secondly, corporate worship is about spiritual formation. Okay, here's what I mean. Worship... And the experience of corporate worship shapes us into a particular kind of person. The activities that we do in here, the different elements that we have of worship, shape us and mold us, form us into a kind of person. It forms us to be Christians. So we hear a call to worship. Why do we do that? You, it's the first thing that you're going to always hear in, in our worship service. Why do, you, why do we do that? Because God calls us into relationship with him. We respond with beauty and singing because our lives are meant to respond to God's initiative by giving all that we have back. We pray here because we are called to be a people of prayer for the sake of the world. We give because we need to be formed into a generous people. Do you see it? We we are formed by the practice of worship. What we do here is meant to shape us to be a certain kind of people out there. What we do in here shapes us to be a certain kind of people out there, which is one reason why it is so important to let the Bible shape how we do worship and not just what we think is cool, what we think is creative and fun. So it's an expression of our love for God. It's about spiritual formation. Lastly, corporate worship is an experience of God. Remember what I said about the temple a second ago? Well, it was more than a second ago. Let's be honest. It was a long time ago. But you you remember what I said, that the the temple was about where heaven and earth meet. That's where God's special presence lived, dwelt. And it was a big deal. The New Testament takes all of that temple language, all of those temple images, all that temple language from the Old Testament, and applies it to the church. The church, not a building, but a people. The church building isn't a temple. The church is. And so when we come together and worship God, called by him, listen to me, we have a taste of what it will be like when he comes to make all things new, when he comes in our midst, when we hear his voice and respond with everything that we are, with joy, when our our sins are fully forgiven, when we feast and rejoice with him. That is why this is such an important moment. That is why this is such an important moment. Thing, what we do here is the center of the Christian life. We, we, we express our love for God, we are formed into God's people, and we experience his presence in a special way. 
all through corporate worship. Which helps, to, helps us to understand why it is that this particular moment in Nehemiah is the high point of the book. Why has everything been leading here? Everything has been leading there in Nehemiah, friends. Because everything in history is leading there. Everything in history is leading us towards the new creation. A people gathered from every race, tribe, and nation giving glory to the one who rescued us as we were made, rescued us and brought us into relationship as we were made to have with him. Which is why this is so important. It is a foretaste of that reality. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, sometimes that's a hard thing to realize. We are sitting in a gym on creaky folding chairs that are plastic. We are sitting next to people and we know their junk. (laughs) We know who they are, what they've done. We know who we are and what we've done. And to see worship as not just a time where we come and say, thank you, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. But also are formed into a particular kind of person, also experience your presence in a special way, that, is, that seems unreal to us. And so, Lord, where our doubts reign, we pray that you would help us. You would meet us there. You would help our unbelief. Lord, where we struggle to be a people who, are, who find what we are doing not just important, but essential. Would you, would you help shape us and change us? And Lord, would you give us a, 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 a mental image even of not just this community worshiping, but an entire community worshiping, an entire city worshiping, an entire world worshiping, giving praise to you because our voices are not enough to give you praise for all that you've done. Let us lean into the day when that is the reality of all of life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.